Cheryl was just telling me the other day, uh, she, she looked across the room, we're sitting in the living room together, and she said, I just love the Old Testament. And we had a little conversation about it, and I've been thinking about that ever since, that, you know, I just love the Old Testament. And the truth is, it, it is such a marvelous document, this, this ancient word, ever true, that literally God, the thing that makes it so amazing is God wove in it and across all of history this rich story of Jesus. And that's what makes it so vibrant and so alive and so exciting to us. Even to be in the book of Numbers, you know, people would hear that. I used to hear that when I was a kid and think, Numbers? Or the Old Testament, it's old. You know, it's dusty. We need the new stuff, Right? I like to call it the Older Testament because there's nothing old or dated about it. I love how God speaks to us directly through it. Well, he'll do that tonight as we will see the sons of Israel off. Yay! They will finally depart the Mount of God. You might be saying, well, Rick, but we're in chapter 8 and they don't depart till chapter 10. Exactly. I'm excited about this, but before they can leave, before they can depart the Mount of God, there are five final preparatory elements, and I want you to note these tonight. And they're significant because these are the last things God does to prepare Israel to depart. The final things we do before taking a family trip are usually pretty significant. They're making sure all our I's are dotted, our T's are crossed, and our luggage is packed correctly. And that's what the Lord is doing here. Five things that are crucial to the successful journey in and through the wilderness. And the first thing, as we begin chapter 8, is the lamps are raised. The lamps are raised. Watch this, verse 1 of Numbers chapter 8. Then the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to Aaron and say to him, When you mount the lamps... The seven lamps will give light in front of the lampstand. Aaron therefore did so. He mounted its lamps at the front of the lampstand, just as Moses had, uh, the Lord had commanded Moses. Now this was the workmanship of the lampstand, hammered work of gold from its base to its flowers. It was hammered work according to the pattern which the Lord had shown Moses, so he made the lampstand. Now, this is interesting, and it helps us understand the lampstand just a little bit better, and it's significant. The seven lamps would have been or were detachable, that they were actual lamps. And if you've seen the old school lamps in Israel, those oil lamps that they have, that you could hold it in your hand, and, and it would have a, a wick that came out of it and burned out at the edge of it. You'd pour the oil into it, and it would burn the flame out in the front. And these lamps would be placed at the front of the lamp stand. Mount here, he says, when you mount the lamps. That's, that's a good word, mount. It's ha'alot in Hebrew, but it also means kindle or light. And so it's, the question is, which one is it? Seven separate lamps, separate pieces from the pure hammered gold of the lampstand. Remember, that was all one piece, the hammered gold lampstand. All one piece of pure gold that was hammered. There's nothing inside of it, no framework. It's just pure gold that was hammered up into its shape from the base all the way up to the flowers. The lamps then were these separate pieces that were set atop it, and they were at the front. That is, they're facing north. Now, if you position yourself on the east side of the tabernacle, you come in 
by the way of the east. Now, you all will be coming in this way, so let me see if I can do it your way. Come in by way of the east, which would mean on the south side of the holy places where the lampstand would be. So for the lamps to be toward the front means they would be facing north. So all the wicks would come out to the north to give maximum light in the holy place. And these lamps then would be mounted facing north inward to the holy place of the tabernacle, again, to give the most light possible, not turned back toward the, you know, toward the wall there, the, um, the woven wall, which that would not be a good idea to have that facing the wall anyway, right? So facing in. Leviticus 24, verse 2 says, Command the sons of Israel that they bring to you clear oil from beaten olives for the light to make a lamp burn continually. Outside the veil of the testimony, in the tent of meeting, Aaron shall keep it in order from evening to morning before the Lord continually, a perpetual statute throughout your generations. So when he mounts the lamps, he is literally mounting, he's literally putting them on and lighting them for the first time. And this has to take place before they leave, before they are going to set out on their journey. Now get this. It may seem nuanced, but I think it's important. There's an argument as to whether continually, to make the lamp burn continually, means that the lampstand burned 24-7, or simply means that the lampstand burned faithfully as they would light it. Now, if you know the story of Hanukkah, you know that they needed that lamp fire to burn for eight straight days, and it did, marvelously. But that doesn't mean that the lampstand always was to stay lit perpetually. In fact, most Jewish scholars say that the lampstand was lit from twilight in the evening. They would light the lampstand, and it would burn all through the night, through the dark night, until morning. Then at daybreak, according to Jewish history, the seven lamps were literally removed from the lampstand, cleaned, trimmed, filled with oil, and then replaced and relit that evening so that they didn't burn during the day. This is new to me, but this is probably the correct understanding, that they probably did every morning. They would remove those lamps, clean them, trim them, get them prepared, put them back up, light them, and they would burn through the night. And why do you say that? Exodus 27, verse 21, in the tent of meeting, outside the veil, which is before the testimony, Aaron and his sons shall keep it in order from evening to morning before the Lord a perpetual statute throughout their generations for the sons of Israel. I remember running across that when we were studying Exodus and thinking, huh, from evening till morning. I always assumed it burned 24-7, that they had to keep the lamps lit all the time. They did have to keep the lamps lit faithfully, perpetually, but apparently only in the dark hours of the night, through the night. Another passage that supports that is 1 Samuel chapter 3, verse 2, which talks about at Shiloh when the Ark of the Covenant, when the tabernacle was resting at Shiloh in the Promised Land, it happened at that time as Eli was lying down in his place. Now his eyesight had begun to grow dim and he could not see well. And the lamp of God had not yet gone out. And Samuel was lying down in the temple of the Lord where the ark was that the Lord called Samuel and said, here I am. Why were they lying down? They were in bed for the night. The lampstand was burning. It had not yet gone out. Some say that the lamp had not yet gone out referred to Eli himself, that it was metaphorical for Eli. It was before Eli had died, the lamp had not gone out. And that anytime you start to get metaphorical, remember with the Bible, it's sketchy. You better be sure 
that God is telling you or that God's word is confirming something as metaphorical or allegorical or parabolic as Jesus' parables would be. But in this case, it seems as though the lamp of God had not yet gone out because it was not yet morning. That the point was it burned all night long. Why the debate? Because you might even right now be sitting there going, well, big deal. Okay, so it either burned during the night or it burned 24 hours. Why does that matter to us? Well, it actually matters to a lot of Christians. It bothers people to think that the lampstand, which represents the Holy Spirit, might go out. I don't want no light going out in my Christian walk. I don't want the Spirit going out on me. Hey, the picture here is just as beautiful. John chapter 1, verse 5 tells us the light shines in the darkness. And the darkness did not comprehend it. And yet, as followers of Jesus Christ, there's, there's a task, there's a call on our lives, morning to evening, as priestly followers, and that is to attend to the light of his presence. To tend the lampstand. Tend the lampstand. What do you mean, like, like tending to the Holy Spirit? Yes, attending, being aware of, focused on. 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 6, I remember where, where Paul tells Timothy, for this reason I remind you to kindle afresh the gift of God which is in you through the laying on of my hands. For God has not given us a spirit of timidity but of power and love and discipline. Kindle afresh, Timothy, he says. Now Paul is probably talking about Timothy's spiritual gift. I believe it was a spiritual gift of teaching that Timothy had that Paul was referring to because throughout the letter he's saying, preach the word, Timothy, preach the word. But the idea here is that he was to tend it, that he was to kindle afresh. And see, while the Spirit of God does not go out on us, never leaves us, never departs, we have a part to play with the Holy Spirit, with the Spirit of the Lord. And that is to mount the lamps every morning or every evening, morning to evening, to mount them every day. That is to tend and to reignite our responsiveness. The light doesn't go out of the Spirit, but our responsiveness to the Spirit of God, to tend to that, to be aware of that. And, and if we're feeling a little dim in our walk, man, to kindle afresh our awareness of the Spirit and his work in our lives as we walk in the light of his presence. As Jesus said, John chapter 3, verse 19, this is the judgment that the light has come into the world and men loved the darkness rather than the light for their deeds were evil. What does that mean? That means people have a tendency to tend to the dark rather than to tend the lamp. For everyone who does evil hates the light and does not come to the light for fear that his deeds will be exposed. But he who practices the truth comes to the light so that his deeds may be manifested as having been wrought in God. Manifested, produced by. Produced by the Lord. Our deeds, our works, our efforts, our focus. That is tending the spirit who resides within us. We tend to the spirit. We attend the spirit in prayer. We attend the Lord in Bible study. We attend the Lord just in focus on him, in, in contemplating him, in loving other people. We tend to the things of the Lord and we light the lamps. So the lamps are raised, and that's where this begins. And I find it interesting that here at the very end, we go right back to the lampstand. And just this piece, we don't talk about the, the altar of incense or the table of showbread. It's just the lampstand. 
that's a focus here. Before we head out into the wilderness on the journey, we are to tend to the lampstand. Tend to the Holy Spirit. We might even say, check in with God before you step out. The lamps are raised. Second thing to note, the Levites are refined. Verse 5. Again, the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Take the Levites from among the sons of Israel and cleanse them. Thus you shall do to them for their cleansing. Sprinkle purifying water on them. Let them use a razor over their whole body, like the swim team, I guess, and wash their clothes, and they will be clean. Now, you remember at the ordination of Aaron and his sons, they went through a full-body mikvah bath. Okay, they were, they were washed from head to toe, completely drenched. Now, it's not the Aaronite priesthood. That ordination has happened. Now, it's calling all the Levites. Calling all Levites to come, the clans of Gershon and Merari and Kohat, who we looked at the last couple of weeks. And they now are refined. They're now purified for their service. And so, there's a washing that takes, that takes place here, a, a cleansing The word says sprinkle purifying water on there. And and, and the word sprinkle, it's implied in the text to sprinkle this purifying water. But what is this purifying water? Don't confuse this. It is not water from the bronze laver. That water that's referred to back in Numbers chapter 5, verse 17 as holy water, that's not the water they used. This would have been probably water from a stream or water that was running from somewhere there at Mount Sinai, but not the bronze labor. That was reserved solely for the work of the Aaronite priests. Okay, so that's the high priest and his sons. They would wash in the bronze labor, but not the Levites, not the rest of the guys. Their work was different. But they are now sprinkled with what's called purified water. Purified water. It's still special. This purified water is mehatat, And it is the same word, chatat, is the same word that's used later in a mixture of water. So we can know what this is. Numbers chapter 19, verse 9 says, A man who is clean shall gather up the ashes of the heifer and deposit them outside the camp in a clean place. And the congregation of the sons of Israel shall keep it as water to remove impurity. Note, it is purification from sin. It's chatat from sin. This is may which is short for ma'im, the word water, mechatat. This is purifying water. And so what is thought is that this water was mixed with the ashes of the red heifer, which we'll explain more when we get to Numbers 19. But it's a special water for purification. Note this, that the lamps were mounted and lit before the purification of Levitical service. And I think that order is significant too. And I like this. The lamps were lit before the ministry began. You get that? In the same way for you, for me, the Holy Spirit comes before our lives of service begin. We don't launch off into service without the Spirit of God. Jesus said to the apostles in Acts chapter one, wait into Jerusalem until power comes on you from on high and you shall be my witnesses. When? After the power comes on you, but until the power comes on you, you wait. Hang on, don't get out ahead of the Lord. Light the lamps. And that seven-lamped stand, reminding us again of the Holy Spirit, lit first, and then the service begins after that. Peter put it this way. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 1. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who reside as aliens, and he lists several places, 
who are chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father by the sanctifying work of the Spirit to obey Jesus Christ and be sprinkled with his blood. May grace and peace be yours in the fullest measure. The Spirit comes first and then the ministry. So the lamp is first lit and then the ministry begins. And knowing that, knowing that the the Spirit is at work in me, knowing that it is the Spirit teaching me and leading me and, and moving in me and empowering me for service, for ministry in the church and in this world, man, that's both comfort and it's a boost of confidence. I'm reminded that it is him at work and not me. I'm just a vessel for the lamp within me of the Holy Spirit. His presence and, by the way, his purification, which is ongoing in me. So verse eight tells us, then let them take a bull with its grain offering, fine flour mixed with oil, and a second bull you shall take for a sin offering. You shall present the Levites before the tent of meeting. You shall also assemble the whole congregation of the sons of Israel and present the Levites, not the Aaronites, they were already ordained, present the Levites before the Lord and the sons of Israel, note this, shall lay their hands on the Levites. Aaron then shall present the Levites before the Lord as a wave offering from the sons of Israel that they may qualify to perform the service of the Lord. They laid their hands on them, so they all gathered around. We do this on Sunday morning with our children. Put your hands on their shoulders, mom, dad. By the way, that happened because Cam said, you know, the children are getting a bit rowdy. So when we pray for them, could we lay hands on them? And I'm like, you mean like heavily? So no, no, just, you know, we, we got we to gotta do something here. To, and it's interesting because we do see a difference. But there's an identification. Anytime you see this in the scripture, the laying on of hands, it has to do with an identification. Okay, when Paul said, I gave, you know, I laid my hands on you, Timothy, rekindle or kindle afresh, he's identifying Timothy with the spirit who came upon Timothy with the laying on of hands. There's always an identification. So here we have all the children of Israel gathered around the Levites and they're laying hands on them and they're ordaining them before the Lord for ministry. But note this, it says, present the Levites, verse 11, before the Lord as a wave offering. The Levites do the wave. Straight down the line. They are a wave offering. What does that mean literally? Think about this. Wave offerings were not slain on the altar. Wave offerings were simply offered before the Lord, lifted up, waved, as in a sheaf of wheat at the appropriate time of year was a wave offering. They would wave it before the Lord. Now, they're they're not gonna lift up each Levite and, you know, (laughs) wave him. But that'd be weird, wouldn't it? But there's a concept here that the Lord is getting across, I want the Levites now to be wave offerings. What does that mean? They're not offered on the altar. They are offered as living sacrifices. Living sacrifices. It's the same sacrificial calling to which we have been called. As Paul wrote in Romans 12, 1, I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. Here's the problem. When we come along and think, no, I'll be the dying sacrifice. Put me on the altar, Lord. I'll sacrifice myself. And we become martyrs for the cause. And the reality is there's only one blood sacrifice. 
There's only one Jesus. There is only one lamb who is pure and perfect to be slain. Only one goes on the altar. The rest of us are wave offerings. We're living sacrifices. Waved before the Lord, entering into lives of service and ministry. But you can't be the lamb. I can't appropriate that. We're like first fruits wave offerings, sheaves of wheat. Interesting, Jesus refers to his followers as wheat, doesn't he? In the parable of the wheat and the tares. So like the wheat, we are wave offerings before the Lord, waved before the Lord, offered to the Lord to give our lives to him as living sacrifices. Verse 12, now the Levites shall lay their hands on the heads of the bulls. So again, by identification, one offer, offer one for the sin offering, so they're identifying that sin, and the other for the burnt offering to the Lord to make atonement for the Levites. Verse 13, you shall have the Levites stand before Aaron and before his sons so as to present them as a wave offering to the Lord. Thus you shall separate the Levites from among the sons of Israel and the Levites shall be mine. And we talked about this previously. Remember the Levites are gonna replace now the firstborn of all Israel. They now belong to the Lord. He continues and says, verse 15, then after that, the Levites may go in to serve in the tent of meeting, but you shall cleanse them, present them as a wave offering, for they are wholly given to me from among the sons of Israel. Don't miss the after that. That is in verse 15. Then after that, the Levites may go in to serve. Meaning? Meaning after they were called, after they were consigned, after they were cleansed, there's a process. God takes the Levites through this process. In fact, the process has been ongoing ever since the golden calf incident of the Levites calling and, and their description of their calling and what they were to do. And the Lord was clear on that as we saw, again, previously in Numbers, teaching each one of the clans, this is what you're gonna do. This is your job. This is your role. Here's your calling. Gets them all set to understand what they are to do and then they're cleansed. It's this process and then after that, now they're ready for ministry. Sometimes we think in our lives, I'm ready right now, sign me up, I'm good to go. And the Lord would say, hold on, it's a process. Don't jump the gun. Like what Paul tells Timothy about elders, he says, they are not to be a new convert so that he will not become conceited and fall into the condemnation incurred by the devil. Here's the thing. Ministry can be a heady thing. It can also be incredibly humbling. <laughs> but it can be a heady, prideful thing if you start to think yourself to be God's gift to the church. And so what he does to us all is take us through a process. I've told you the story before, so I won't tell the whole thing, but I remember being a young youth pastor in Southern California. Actually, not too young. I think I was 34 at the time. And at the church that I was serving and had served for several years as a youth pastor, and our senior pastor retired, and they were in the process of looking for a new senior pastor, and I thought, I can do that. Call on me. I'm your guy. And a couple of elders who were also on my youth adult leader team came and sat down with me at my house one night and lovingly, gently said, Rick, we're not going to consider you for this job. I'm like, what are you talking about? I've been handling the student ministry. I can handle a bunch of lame adults. 
And they're like, see? <laughs> but I, they, they were very kind and very gracious and paid me a lot of compliments, but none of them fell, you know, all I heard was just, uh, not enough, not good enough, not ready. The Bible says don't lay hands on anyone too quickly. There's a process. We need to understand in our lives, it's a process that each step along the way, there, there's something coming, there's the next thing. God is always preparing us for what is about to come. And for our part, we don't jump ahead, we don't jump the gun. I like what Dennis Prager said. I actually heard this on a podcast of his just last week. He said, you know a rule of thumb of mine, he said, don't let the compliments go to your head and don't let the insults go to your heart. That's good. Don't let the compliments go to your head. Don't let the insults go to your heart. And again, Paul said, 1 Timothy 5.22, do not lay hands on anyone too hastily and thereby share the sins of others. Keep yourself free from sin. So it's after all of this preparation, now the Lord says, now you can start your service after that. And then he says in verse 16, continuing, I have taken them for myself instead of every first issue of the womb, the firstborn of all the sons of Israel. For every firstborn among the sons of Israel is mine, among the men and among the animals. On the day that I struck down all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, I sanctified them for myself. Remember how he did that at Passover? And the Passover lamb and the blood on the doorpost, and I am sanctifying the firstborn of Israel. They belong to me now. Firstborn of Egypt did not. And he makes this very clear, and we, he, he's discussed this, he's talked about this before, and then he says in verse 18, I have taken the Levites instead of every firstborn among the sons of Israel. I've also given the Levites as a gift to Aaron and to his sons from among the sons of Israel to perform the service of the sons of Israel at the tent of meeting and to make atonement on behalf of the sons of Israel so that there will no longer, so there will be no plague among the sons of Israel by their coming near to the sanctuary. Remember we talked about the Levites were a buffer zone. Mediators between the people and the tabernacle, between the people and God. A zone of protection, as it were, even in their ministry. They were a gift to Aaron and his sons so that Aaron and his sons could do the work in the tabernacle while the Levites took care of everything around the tabernacle and on the outside. They're a gift. I think anybody who ever volunteers for service in the church is a gift. Truly. Verse 20. Thus did Moses and Aaron and all the congregation of the sons of Israel to the Levites, according to all the Lord had commanded Moses concerning the Levites, so the sons of Israel did to them. Verse 21, the Levites too purified themselves from sin, washed their clothes. Aaron presented them as a wave offering before the Lord. Aaron also made atonement for them to cleanse them. And then after that, the Levites went in to perform their service in the tent of meeting before Aaron and before his sons, just as the Lord had commanded Moses concerning the Levites, so they did to them and so here, again, before departure, God established his servants for ministry in the wilderness. This is also, note this, before they would serve in the promised land. So I find that placement interesting. He prepares them, he calls them, he consecrates them, he purifies them, and then he starts them into their service, and they immediately go into the wilderness. Long before they would ultimately, 38 years later, reach the promised land. 
It's the same with you and me. He calls, he cleanses, he gets us going in our ministry, establishes us as a royal priesthood of believers to serve Jesus Christ right now before we serve him in the promised kingdom, which we will do. Revelation 20, verse 6, blessed and holy is the one who has a part in the first resurrection. Over these, the second death has no power, but they will be priests of God and of Christ and will reign with him for a thousand years in the kingdom. Rick, you bring up the kingdom a lot. Yes, I do. Honestly, I don't know why it's not talked about more in the church. Why don't we talk more about the kingdom? Why don't Christians converse about our priestly ministry in the promised land, the kingdom of God, to come, as opposed to simply here in the wilderness? We're so focused on the wilderness, but that is our hope. Peter called it, 1 Peter 1, 3, our living hope. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his great mercy has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. That's what keeps hope alive. We're about to come into Holy Week and celebrate Resurrection Sunday. The resurrection of Jesus is my hope because it speaks of my resurrection. And my resurrection is not unto floating around for a billion years. My resurrection is unto the kingdom of God, resurrected to serve him as a, a priest, a royal priesthood, not just in the wilderness, but in the kingdom to come. Paul said in 1 Corinthians 15, 19, if we have hoped in Christ in this life only, we above all men are most to be pitied. I couldn't agree more. If the whole focus of our Christian life is getting through the wilderness, we have missed it. And we'll have no hope in the wilderness. Which is why you see Christians despairing like non-Christians because the focus is all on the here and now. As opposed to the recognition that we're in the wilderness now, but we are going to be priests in the promised land then. And that's the point. That's the goal. That's where we're headed. Paul said, 1 Corinthians 15, 20, now Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who are asleep. Then in verse 23, but each in his own order, Christ the first fruits, and after that, those who are Christ's at his coming. And then comes the end when he hands over the kingdom of God, or the kingdom to the God and Father when he has abolished all rule and all authority and all power. In other words, his resurrection is proof of our resurrection, and then the kingdom. And then the believer's priesthood kicks into full gear. Not in the wilderness but in the kingdom to come. And when we live with that kind of focus and understanding, we have all kinds of hope in this world. We do not despair. When there are threats to our way of, of living as Americans, when there are concerns among us as to how things are being handled in Washington, when there are global pandemics, my hope is not here. This is the wilderness. Of course it's gonna be messy, but there, in the kingdom, that's, that's what my priesthood is being prepared for. And so as with the Levitical priest, so with the royal priesthood, he's called you, he's cleansed you, and he's said, now it's time, do your service, get into your ministry. But you know what? This is preparation. This is wilderness ministry for kingdom come. Verse 23, now, 
The Lord spoke to Moses saying, this is what applies to the Levites. From 25 years old and upward, they shall enter to perform the service in the work of the tent of meeting. You may recall earlier it was 30 to 50. They were called to their priesthood to begin at the age of 30 and then retire at 50. Well, now he says they shall enter to perform the service at 25. What's going on there? Hold that thought. But at the age of 50 years, they shall retire from service in the work and not work anymore. They may, however, assist their brothers in the tent of meeting to keep an obligation, but they themselves shall do no work. Thus you shall deal with the Levites concerning their obligations. If you weren't here a couple weeks back, here's how it works. The priest, the Levitical priest, entered into their priesthood at 25 for training. They spent five years apprenticed in the role. And then they became official at the age of 30, actually entering into their full-blown priesthood. They served 20 years, and then at the age of 50, they retired. But the retired Levite was not done, wasn't just finished. Now, think about this. The reason why it was only 20 years, it was hard work. If you would just go back and look at what the Gershonites and the Merorites and the Kohathites were to do in their travels through the wilderness, but then even beyond when they would ultimately have the temple, what was the Levitical work? There's a lot of heavy lifting, a lot of caring for animals, moving things about, and it was, it was roll up your sleeves, hard work. And so God said, Let's just give them 20 years, and then at 50 they can retire from that. However, they're not done. In fact, the word retire in verse 25, at the age of 50 years, they shall retire. The word is literally return, yasub. They shall return from service in the work and not work anymore. So they would return from their work. They wouldn't go about the same old stuff they were doing before. They were no longer hands-on with this ministry, but instead, they were hands-on in training. Hands-on in training. They were to assist their brothers He says here, to keep an obligation in verse 26. Well, what does that mean? The word obligation in Hebrew is literally to keep a charge or to safeguard or to oversee. To keep an obligation was to oversee, as in a mentor overseeing an apprentice. So there's your five years. The 25-year-old till he was 30 was overseen. Who? By who? Well, the Levites that were ages 30 to 50 were busy working. Doing the service. So who's going to train up the 25 to 30-year-olds? Those who return from the service. I love the picture. I'll tell you what, it wasn't until I turned 50 that I began to think that maybe I partially understood a little bit of the Bible. You get to a point in life where the wisdom and the experience is less likes to say there's no substitute for mileage. And those who have spent many years in the service of the Lord to then mentor those who are coming up. That's, that's biblical. That's godly. And that's the way we believe that it worked with the Levites. Brothers and sisters, as a royal priesthood, we don't retire. We simply don't. We may leave the heavy lifting to the younger brethren, but we have a responsibility to watch over and to keep each generation of priests So before they head into the wilderness, the lamps are raised. The Levites are refined. And now, chapter 9, the Passover is remembered. The Passover is remembered. Thus the Lord spoke to Moses in the wilderness of Sinai. In the first month of the second year, after they had come out of the land of Egypt. Now, the first month at that time was called 
Abib, the month of Abib. That's how it's referred to back in Exodus 12 at the time of Passover, the month of Abib. After the Babylonian captivity, when the exiles returned, it would be changed to the month of Nisan. And it still is to this day called the month of Nisan. But he says, now let the sons of Israel observe the Passover at its appointed time. On the 14th day of this month, at twilight, you shall observe it at its appointed time. You shall observe it according to all its statutes and according to all its ordinances. So Moses told the sons of Israel to observe the Passover. They observed the Passover in the first month, on the 14th day of the month, at twilight, in the wilderness of Sinai, according to all that the Lord had commanded Moses. So the sons of Israel did. Pesach, the Passover. This year, it's Saturday night. Nisan the 14th, Saturday, begins in the evening on Saturday in Israel. And we're off by about a week this year because the Jewish calendar is lunar and our calendar is solar. And so we're 365 days and they're 360 days a year. And that's why it's always off every year, why Easter doesn't fall at the same time as Passover and, and such. So Passover is celebrated here at Sinai before they leave. But you might wonder, or maybe you have wondered, how is it possible that Jesus could legitimately keep the Last Supper, which was Passover, and be the Passover lamb? In other words, how could he celebrate Passover and then subjugate Passover to himself on the cross all at the same time? How could he do that legitimately? You'd think if he kept it on Thursday, Passover's over, and the next day he's on the cross, so he he really couldn't technically be the Passover lamb, but it works beautifully. Remember the phrase, at twilight, verse three? On the 14th day of this month, at twilight, literally translates between the two evenings. So between the two evenings, Jesus commemorated, celebrated Passover with the apostles and became the Passover lamb. Between the two evenings, Passover was kept by Jesus perfectly. But Passover is mandatory preparation. Again, as with the raising of the lamps and the refining of the Levites, now remembering Passover before they go into the wilderness. Just as the lamb was slain before they left Egypt. Lamb was slain and then they left. Now, remember the Passover, remember the Passover lamb, and then you head off into the wilderness. Then you leave for Sinai. And the Passover lamb, Jesus as I said earlier, woven into history and into all of the remarkable things that God called on his people to do, we have the Passover lamb, the lamb that was slain. Paul puts it this way, 1 Corinthians 1.23, we preach Christ crucified. And before we take one step out, that's the mission. That's what we do. We preach Christ crucified. Paul said in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 2, for I determined to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. Do you remember what had happened in Paul's life at that point? I mean, you Bible students remember he had just come from Athens. And in Athens, he had spoken, uh, Acts chapter 17, a most eloquent sermon, very philosophical. He quoted their philosophers. He made all kinds of just really cool metaphysical arguments for God and for faith. And he didn't talk about the cross, at least not in the scripture. And he leaves there, and as he's leaving Athens, we're told he had maybe one or two converts. And then Paul, by himself, makes the long journey down to Corinth. He arrives at Corinth, and he says, 
I determined to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. No philosophies of man, no brilliant arguments, no uh, you know, debate strategies. I'm just gonna go and at Corinth, and, he, I, I'm, and I don't know this for a fact, but I really have this assumption in my mind that as Paul made that journey down to Corinth, he was processing what had taken place and what did not work at Athens because at Corinth, he said I, nothing else but the message of the cross. We preach Christ crucified, which is why you see this throughout 1 Corinthians. He goes back to the cross again and again. It's cross and resurrection, cross and resurrection, 1 Corinthians 15. I, he said, I, I told you what was of first importance, that Jesus Christ died according to the scriptures, was buried according to the scriptures, and was raised on the third day. That's it. That's the whole message. In 1 Corinthians 5, 7, for Christ our Passover also has been sacrificed. Before we weather the wilderness, Oh, we, we attend to the Holy Spirit. The lamps are raised. And, and, and we're cleansed. The Levites are refined. But then Passover must be remembered. That is our message. But, verse 6, there were some men who were unclean because of the dead person. So they could not observe Passover on that day. And so they came before Moses and Aaron on that day. And those men said to him, though we are unclean, because of a dead person, why are we restrained from presenting the offering of the Lord at its appointed time among the sons of Israel? Moses therefore said to them, wait, and I will listen to what the Lord will command concerning you. I love this. This is glow face Mo. Moses of the glowing face, Right? This is the one who frightened the people and had to put a veil over his face because every time he talked to God, he was lit up. This is the leader of millions. This is the deliverer, the wielder of the staff of God, the converser with Yahweh. And when they come to him and say, what do we do? We'd like to offer Passover, but, but we're unclean because of a dead body. What does Moses do? Well, according to my vast knowledge and experience with the Lord, I'll tell you what you shall do. No. Moses says, stand by. Wait. The word there, wait, is literally stand. Stand by. Hold on. See, the man of God is not presumptuous. The woman of God doesn't assume to know the answers. We know we're not the ones who have the answers. God's the one who has the answers. Now, if he's given us the answer before, we can give the answer. But if you're ever in a situation where someone questions your faith and gives you a tough, challenging question, and you're like, oh, I don't, don't make stuff up. It is, it is absolutely righteous to say, that's a great question, I don't know. But I'll, I'll check with God. I'll go to the Bible, I'll study it out, and I'll come back with an answer for you. you wait here, stand by. Stand by, and I will check with the Lord. Or like the Lord says in Psalm 46.10, cease striving and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. It is not about our exalting our position as priests. We're just servants of the house. So we say, stand by. I'll check with the master. Verse nine, Moses has done so, and the Lord spoke to Moses saying, speak to the sons of Israel, saying, if any one of you 
or of your generations becomes unclean because of a dead person or is on a distant journey. He may, however, observe the Passover of the Lord. You can see the guy's face is lighting up. All right, cool, we can do it. In the second month, on the 14th day at twilight, they shall observe it. They shall eat it with unleavened bread and bitter herbs. They shall leave none of it until morning, nor break a bone of it. According to all the statute of the Passover, they shall observe it. Hey, guys, you get to observe Passover on a one-month delay. So you don't do it in the first month with everybody else. If you're unclean, you don't take Passover because there's still that issue. You don't celebrate the feast of the Lord in uncleanness. So he says, we'll wait one month. You have a month to be clean, to be cleansed you know, by Torah law of the contact with the dead person or if you're out of the area or whatever, you have a month. And then one month later on the 14th, you celebrate Passover exactly as it's celebrated in the month of Nisan. So now you celebrate it on the 14th of the second month. It's beautiful. God gives a great answer. I'm gonna separate uncleanness. We don't want uncleanness, but graciously he allows them still to celebrate and not have to wait an entire year until the next Passover. Verse 13. But the man who is clean and not on a journey and yet neglects to observe the Passover, that person shall then be cut off from his people. Why? Because we preach Christ crucified. Because that's the message that matters, must be remembered. For he did not present the offering of the Lord at its appointed time. That man will bear his sin. Then he says, note this, verse 14, if an alien sojourns among you and observes the Passover to the Lord according to the statute of the Passover and according to its ordinance, so he shall do. You shall have one statute, both for the alien and for the native of the land. But wait a minute. Isn't Passover a Jewish thing? It's about their deliverance, right? What does it have to do with the alien who happens to be in the land? The answer is very simple. Both the native and the alien need the Passover lamb. John 1.29, John the Baptist saw Jesus coming to him and said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Revelation 5.9, they sang a new song saying, Worthy are you to take the book and break its seals, for you were slain and purchased for God with your blood men from every tribe and tongue and people and nation. You have made them to be a kingdom and priest to our God. They will reign upon the earth. Native and alien alike need the Passover. And we need to remember this. If I, if I make a, a comparison here, native and alien, native to the land, the Israelite, we say native to the Lord, the Christian, follower of Jesus, we still need to remember the cross. We come to the table every Sunday, every Wednesday to remember the cross, to recognize Christ and him crucified. The alien needs the Passover lamb too, the non-believer. And that is something that ought to be, and we can even pray for it to be, a burden on the heart of every believer, and that is for the outsider, the alien, the non-believer, the person who is lost, needs the Passover lamb. They need to be able to celebrate Passover with us. Keep that in mind, I'll come back to that. So the Passover now is remembered, and we come to the fourth element prior to their departure. The cloud is recognized. The cloud is recognized, verse 15. Now on the day that the tabernacle was erected, the cloud covered the tabernacle. That was Exodus chapter 40, verse 17. And the tent of 
the testimony in the evening, it was like the appearance of fire over the tabernacle until morning. By the way, that was the first day of the first month of, of the, uh, this is now the first day of the first month of the second year that, that he's looking back and saying, now remember when we, you erected this, when it was finished, and so it was continuously, verse 16, the cloud would come over it by day and the appearance of fire by night. And now in this next little bit of the section, this is Moses looking back. He, he, as he's writing this out, he's recalling. So it's almost like the story, the narrative stops for a moment and Moses at a later date is recalling because he says, it was continuously the cloud would cover it by day and the appearance of fire by night. Verse 17, whenever the cloud was lifted from over the tent, Afterward, the sons of Israel would then set out. And in the place where the cloud settled down, there the sons of Israel would camp. At the command of the Lord, the sons of Israel would set out. And at the command of the Lord, they would camp. As long as the cloud settled over the tabernacle, they remained camped. Even when the cloud lingered over the tabernacle for many days, the son of Israel would keep the Lord's charge and not set out. If sometimes the cloud remained a few days over the tabernacle, according to the command of the Lord, they remained camped. And then according to the command of the Lord, they set out. If sometimes the cloud remained from evening until morning, when the cloud was lifted in the morning, they would move out. Or in the daytime and at night, whenever the cloud was lifted, they would set out. Think about that. That implies that there were times where the cloud was moving and stopped and they sat down and began to pitch their tents and make their camp. And the next morning, the cloud lifted and started moving again. There's a whole MASH episode called Bug Out where it's like every morning they had to get up and bug out and re put the camp over here. Now we gotta bug out and put the camp over here. Oh, bug out. And over and over the whole episode is this, it's funny because they get settled and they hear bug out and they gotta break down. That apparently happened. Is God just messing with them? <laughs> okay, let's stop here. Never mind. And off he goes. He's teaching them to trust him. The whole journey through the wilderness is about dependency. He's making them dependent on him before they ever get into the promised land in the same way that he's making you, making me dependent on him before we get to the kingdom. So that as priests in his kingdom, as we rule and reign with him, we will do so by complete and total dependency on Jesus Christ. So the cloud would set out, whether it was two days, verse 22, or a month, or a year, that the cloud lingered over the tabernacle, staying above it, the sons of Israel remained camped and did not set out, but when it was lifted, they set out. At the command of the Lord, they camped, and at the command of the Lord, they set out. They kept the Lord's charge according to the command of the Lord through Moses. So for all the picking on the Israelites for their failures, and we'll see many of them in the wilderness, this one they kept. Good for them. They kept the charge of the Lord. If the cloud began to move, they got after it. They moved as well. Interesting, 13 times the cloud is referred to in this section from verse 15 to verse 23. 13 times the cloud. And it's the number of all the tribes of Israel, including Levi and Ephraim and Manasseh. Now, we always say the 12 tribes of Israel. Well, that's 12 if you take Levi out as the priestly tribe and have Ephraim and Manasseh, or if you leave Levi in and just say the tribe of Joseph, which is Ephraim and Manasseh. But all told, 
With Ephraim, Manasseh, and Levi, there are 13 tribes, 13 times the cloud is referenced here. I find that interesting. As though the Lord is saying to us, all of Israel's journey was undercover. When the cloud moved, they moved. If the cloud stayed, they stayed. God alone led the journey. Deuteronomy 32, 11, like an eagle that stirs up its nest that hovers over its young, he spread his wings and caught them and carried them on his pinions. The Lord alone guided them and there was no foreign God with them. This wilderness journey is not forever. But my friends, there is coming a day when we will see the cloud again. Listen to this prophecy of Isaiah, chapter four, verse two. In that day, the branch of the Lord, that is Jesus, will be beautiful and glorious. And the fruit of the earth will be the pride and the adornment of the survivors of Israel. It will come about that he who is left in Zion and remains in Jerusalem will be called holy. Everyone who is recorded for life in Jerusalem. When the Lord has washed away the filth of the daughters of Zion and purged the bloodshed of Jerusalem from her midst by the spirit of judgment and the spirit of burning, then the Lord will create over the whole area of Mount Zion and over her assemblies a cloud by day, even smoke, and the brightness of a flaming fire by night, for over all the glory will be a canopy there will be a shelter to give shade from the heat of the day and a refuge and protection from the storm and the rain. And that is over Jerusalem in the millennial kingdom. You're gonna see this cloud. We're gonna see it appear there. And it will be a reminder perpetually through the kingdom, even all the way back to their dependency on the Lord and the fact that he alone led them through the wilderness. With the lamps raised Levites refined, Passover retained, and cloud recognized. One more thing. Chapter 10, number five in our list. And then they depart, the trumpets resound. The trumpets resound. The Lord spoke further to Moses saying, make yourself two trumpets of silver, of hammered work you shall make them. You shall use them for summoning the congregation and for having the camp set out. When both are blown, all the congregation shall gather themselves to you at the doorway of the tent of meeting. Yet, if only one is blown, then the leaders, the heads of the divisions of Israel, shall assemble before you. But when you blow an alarm, the camps that are pitched on the east side, that is Judah first, all the camps under Judah's banner, shall set out. When you blow an alarm the second time, the camps that are pitched on the south side shall set out. An alarm is to be blown for them to set out. When convening the assembly, however, you shall blow without sounding an alarm. The priestly sons of Aaron, moreover, shall blow the trumpets, and this shall be for you a perpetual statute throughout your generations. When you go to war in your land against the adversary who attacks you, then you shall sound an alarm with the trumpets that you may be remembered before the Lord your God and be saved from your enemies." Also, in the day of your gladness and in your appointed feasts and on the first days of your month, you shall blow the trumpets over your burnt offerings, over the sacrifices of your peace offerings, and they shall be as a reminder of you before your God. I am the Lord your God. The trumpets will resound. 
Now, obviously, this is the stuff of the prophetic, but hang with me a second here. Interesting video began to make the rounds on YouTube. And this was several years back. In fact, it was at least five, maybe six years ago. And maybe you saw it, and it's been brought up to me two or three times since then, because you know how when a video gets on YouTube, it just keeps going round and round and round. And the video claimed or questioned the authentic place of the Temple Mount. What if 3,500 years, which even that number's not correct, but what if, what if 2,500 years, what if 3,000 years of history is wrong? What if all the archaeologists are wrong and what we call the Temple Mount in Jerusalem today is not the Temple Mount? And they try to make a case that that whole thing is, the, is Antonio's fortress. That was the fortress, what we call the Temple Mount today, that 35 acres in the major box with the stones of Herod beneath and all that. Maybe that was just Antonio's fortress, and the actual Temple Mount was south, down in the city of David. See, the city of David was south of Jerusalem, of the old city of Jerusalem today. They would go up to Temple from the city of David. But that question was thrown out there, and I had people coming to me, this was a few tours back again, coming to me saying, is this a possibility? And I'm like, I can't even imagine. But I'll talk to Roni when we get to Jerusalem. We'll, we'll have a conversation about this. And we'll look at some things. And I remember pulling Roni aside. I'd just gotten off the plane. I said, I just got to ask you a question. There's all this buzz about maybe the Temple Mount really isn't the Temple Mount. Maybe we're, have you heard this? Have you heard we're wrong? And Roni goes, come and see. And this is prior to the group even getting there. We went down to the south end of the Temple Mount, southwest corner. And there's a whole uh, area down there and where there have been all kinds of archaeological finds and digs. And all you need to do is spend about a half an hour down there. And it's like, okay, no question. No question about the location of the Temple Mount. Here's the thing. In 1968, and this is related to the trumpets, so hang with me. Archaeologist Benjamin Mazar made an amazing find. Benjamin Mazar, his daughter, or granddaughter actually, is Elat Mazar, who is one of the more famous archaeologists alive in Israel right now. Benjamin Mazar has since passed, but back in 68 he found something. His granddaughter continued in the family business of archaeology. She's the one who actually uncovered the city of David. They found amazing things down there. The seal of Hezekiah they found down there. They found David's palace and now every time we go back, when we go to the city of David, it's, it's different every time because it's been so unearthed. They just keep digging and keep finding. They have since found what they call the Pilgrim's Road that runs from the city of David underground now, but you can walk it these days, up to the Temple Mount, a road that would have been walked by Jesus. So very cool stuff is happening there. But in 1968, Benjamin Mazar found, buried under the, the schmaltz and the rubble of the southwest corner, of the Temple Mount, a stone corner. Not a cornerstone, it wasn't like the, you know, the, the placement stone, the chief stone, but a, a stone corner, literally, was kind of dug out and, and obviously had come from atop the structure of the Temple Mount. And there are all kinds of stones that were smashed and smashing down on the Herodian Street down below, right there. But he found this particular one very interesting. It had an inscription on it. They began to study it, and in Hebrew, the inscription, Lebet Hatikyalach, 
And it literally means to the place of the trumpeting. To the place of the trumpeting. It came from the southwest corner of the Temple Mount and inscribed on it said, to the place of the trumpeting. And then there was something else that it said that, that was lost. They haven't been able to find. In that corner is where the priest would have blown one of the two silver trumpets. The place of the trumpeting. There was a notch in this, and you can actually see this, this find. It's amazing. There's a notch there, just about the right size for placing a silver trumpet. So they could place it there. They could come up, blow the trumpet, set it back down, go back about their business, and then ultimately put the trumpet away later. To the place of the trumpeting, where the trumpet was blown atop, yes, the actual temple mount. The trumpets were blown, and, and I'm just going to go through these very quickly. If you're taking notes, jot them down fast for seven reasons. I'm just gonna give these to you straight through. The silver trumpets resounded for convocation in verses two and three. That is to gather all the tribes of Israel, they would blow these trumpets and everybody would gather if both were blown. So for convocation, the trumpets resounded for administration. That is, if just one was blown, then the leaders came. There's some administrative thing, something that an organizational thing for the, for the tribes of Israel, so they would just show up if the one was blown. And that's in verse four. The trumpets resounded, number three, for mobilization, verses five, six, and seven. These are blown, you head out, you sound the alarm, off you go. Four, the trumpets resounded for generations. Verse eight says, this shall be a perpetual statute for you throughout your generation. So this was to be ongoing. And the trumpets were resounded for, number six, celebration, Verse 10 and following, where you blow it for your feast days and for your days of gladness and the first day of the month, you blew the trumpet. So it was just all of their, it was part of the life, the sound of this trumpet, calling the people even for celebration. But listen, seventh thing to note, the silver trumpets resound for revelation. It's all about revelation. It's about what I said when we began, the weaving of this rich tapestry through history of God painting the picture and telling the story of Jesus. The silver trumpets resound for revelation. Think about this. Why two trumpets? Why not just one? Why not six? Now, of course, further on you go, when Solomon builds his temple, they have a bunch of trumpets. They don't just have two because Solomon did everything big. But why just two trumpets? Well, is that in case one got sat on or, you know, dinged or lost? First trumpet and the last trumpet. The first trumpet sounded at Mount Sinai. Exodus 19, 16, it came about on the third day. When it was morning, there were thunder and lightning flashes and a thick cloud upon the mountain and a very loud trumpet sound. So all the people who were in the camp trembled. The trumpet blast of the voice of God himself. And that trumpet sound was the sound of a shofar which has a very distinct sound, the sound of the ram's horn. That's the first trumpet. The last trumpet, 1 Corinthians 15, 51, in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised imperishable, and we will be changed. First trumpet, last trumpet. And again, the first trumpet sounded like the shofar. However, over time, the use of either the two silver trumpets or a single silver trumpet or the shofar, it became interchangeable. So it wasn't like, well, if they're blowing the silver trumpets, that doesn't count. No, it counted. In fact, it seems as though the two silver trumpets ultimately replaced the shofar for the blowing of trumpets in Israel. So either one is fine. 
And if you look back historically and, and rabbinically, they're like, it, either one is acceptable. But here's the point. It's not the kind of horn. It's the sound. It's the sound. Are you listening for the trumpet to sound? Okay, real quickly. I think I've told you this before. Years ago, I was a youth pastor in Virginia, and, and I got a call from a friend of mine, and he said, Rick, man, make sure your house is in order. I'm like, what? His name is Darren. I'm like, what's up, Darren? Make sure your house is in order. Why? I just heard this story, and again, this is another one of those things that has gone around. I don't know what the legitimacy of it was, but he said, I heard this story. A guy was standing by the side of the road, woman pulled over, rolled down her window, said, are you okay, sir, older man? And he said, the trumpets are about to sound, and he disappeared. So Darren's like, dude, I'm freaking out. <laughs> but you know what? I stopped and thought about that. And whether there's any legitimacy to it or not is not my point. My point is, is my house in order? Am I ready for the trumpet to sound? What if it sounds tonight? You've heard me ask this question, Jason, before. We've, we've had the conversation. What, what if the trumpet sounds tomorrow? Are you ready? What if the last trumpet sounds Saturday at 2.35? I'm not saying it will. What if it does? Is your house in order? Are you ready? Two trumpets, first trumpet, last trumpet. Why are the trumpets silver? Silver means redemption in the Bible. The sound of redemption. And by the way, note this. Verse 5 of chapter 10 says, But when you blow an alarm, the camps that are pitched on the east side shall set out. The word blow an alarm is teruah. When you teruah, you set out. Get it? The day of trumpets, the day of blowing, is called yom teruah. Day of the alarm sound. And by the way, teruah is a specific sound. It is nine staccato blasts. da 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 and at that sound, when they heard that blown, it was time to set out. Will we be setting out on Yom Teruah, perhaps? What will the trumpet sound be? And, and, and might that be what we hear? A, a nine staccato trumpet blast, and then the voice resounds. Will we hear that? Look over in uh, Numbers chapter 29, verse 1. Numbers 29, 1, if you can turn there real quickly. It says, now in the seventh month, on the first day of the month, you shall also have a holy convocation. You shall do no laborious work. It will be to you a day for blowing trumpets, that is, Yom Teruah. We talked about that back in Leviticus 23. Yom Teruah, the day of blowing. Today, the Jews have the head of the year, Rosh Hashanah. But on the first of Tishri, which is the seventh month in the calendar year, on that day, they had a day of blowing, just blowing the trumpets. Why? Just blow the trumpets, the Lord said. What's the point? It's prophetic. It's revelational. The trumpets are revelational. They resound for revelation. Not the revelation of a day, but of a person. There are 66 books in the Bible. One revelation. The revelation of Jesus Christ. Revelation chapter 1, verse 1. 1 Thessalonians 4, 16, the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel and with the trumpet of God. Note that, it's three things. The Lord's gonna shout. The archangel's gonna be speaking. I don't know what he's gonna be saying, you know, organizing the angels, okay, get ready, because we gotta help you all around the outside here, I don't know. He'll be speaking. 
Lord's gonna shout and the trumpet of God, the last trumpet will sound and the dead in Christ will rise first. And we who are alive will remain, will be caught up together with him in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we shall always be with the Lord. And by the way, the word teruah not only means to sound an alarm or blowing, it also can be translated shout. Day of the shout, Yom Teruah. John writes in the Revelation chapter four, verse one, after these things I looked and behold a door standing open in heaven and the first voice which I had heard like the sound of a trumpet speaking with me said, come up here and I will show you what must take place after these things. And immediately John says, I was in the spirit and behold a throne was standing in heaven and one sitting on the throne, John was caught up. John was raptured to see amazing things. And if you don't know what he saw, Man, go back and listen to the Revelation study because it's awesome. Revelation 4 and 5, John's there in heaven, but it begins with a shout, a sound like the, like the trumpet, a voice that says, come up here. The trumpets are revelational. So as with all the rest of this, the silver trumpets are vital, not just for the life of Israel, but for a prophetic indication to the church of that day when the trumpet will finally sound. Verse 11, now in the second year, in the second month, on the 20th of the month, the cloud was lifted from over the tabernacle of the testimony. And the sons of Israel set out on their journeys from the wilderness of Sinai, and the cloud settled down in the wilderness of Paran. That means the place of caverns. Understand the wilderness was not a flat desert wilderness. It wasn't just truck your way to the promised land. There were caves, there were mountains, there were peaks, there were caverns. It was a rough journey, a difficult journey to make. So they, they settled there because the cloud stops at the wilderness of Paran. And so they moved out for the first time, verse 13, according to the commandment of the Lord through Moses. Note this, verse 14, the standard of the camp of the sons of Judah. That would have been the standard, the banner of a lion. And the sons of Judah, according to their army, set out first with Nachshon, Verse 15, Netanel. Verse 16, Eliab, leading the way of the tribes of, of Judah and Issachar and Zebulun under that one banner. Verse 17, the tabernacle then was taken down. So step two in the process. Tabernacles taken down. The sons of Gershon, sons of Merari, who were carrying the tabernacle, set out. Step three, verse 18. Next, the standard of the camp of Reuben, according to their armies, set out. Reuben's banner is held up. The banner of a man was the symbol of Reuben with Elitzer and Shalumiel and Eliasaph leading their tribes. Verse 21, then step four, the Kohathites set out carrying the holy objects and the tabernacle was set up before their arrival. So note the organization of that. After Judah comes the tabernacle broken down and sets out and then comes uh, Reuben and then come the Kohathites with the articles so that by the time they reach camp, tabernacle's already set up. They go right in and set the things up. And then, verse 22, the standard of the camp of the sons of Ephraim, which was a banner of a calf. According to their armies, was set out with Elishema, son of Amichud, over its army and Gamaliel, verse 23, and Abidon, verse 24, and verse 25. Then the standard of the camp of the sons of Dan, their banner was an eagle. According to their armies, which formed the rear guard for all the camps, set out with Ahietzer, and Pagiel, verse 26, and Ahira, verse 27. 
And verse 28 tells us this was the order of march of the sons of Israel by their armies as they set out. And I love the picture. My friends, the journey with the Lord was not haphazard. It wasn't go. You know, it wasn't like people gathered around and the stewardess comes out and says, we're about to begin boarding, and everybody just crams in. You know, No, they go by rows. They go in order, step by step. This journey was not haphazard, and neither is yours. And I think that is so important to recognize. Our journey in the wilderness is wholly intentional on the part of the Lord. Where he takes us, what we experience. He's not even surprised by our rebellions, folks. He knows where they're going to happen, where they're going to come. He's prepared for that. He is intentional for everything that's coming. We might not always know where we're going in the wilderness journey, but he knows. And so in the organization of God, the Lion of Judah goes first. He always does. Jesus, when he says, take up your cross and follow me, knows he's gonna take up his cross before any of us pick up ours. He goes first. He moves through all of it for even the resurrection. He's the first fruits. And then we'll follow after him. So he knows the way. In fact, Thomas said to him in John 14, 5, Lord, we don't know where you're going. How do we know the way? And Jesus said, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. So the journey is not haphazard. It's planned. God knows what he's doing. We just need to follow him. But we also note this are not called to go it alone. Verse 29, then Moses said to Hobab, the son of Reuel, the Midianite, Moses' father-in-law, we are setting out to the place of which the Lord said, I will give it to you. Come with us. We will do you good. For the Lord has promised good concerning Israel. Now, Reuel, just for clarification, Reuel the Midianite is Jethro. So that's Moses' father-in-law. Hobab is the son of Jethro. So Hobab is Moses' brother-in-law. Hobab. This is the only time you hear about Hobab in the Bible. Today, we coined a, a kind of a nickname for him. Hobab the hillbilly Midianite. I mean, with a name like Hobab, you know. And he's a Midianite, and so he, apparently what's happened here, Hobab, his name means loved one, and he's stuck around. You may recall uh, back in Exodus 17, I believe it is, that, that Jethro came to Moses and, and the people encamped at Sinai and, and met with Moses and talked to them, and then Jethro departs, he leaves. Well, apparently, ever since then, Hobab has stuck in there. He, he stayed there, Moses' brother-in-law. Maybe they were tight. Maybe, you know, and, and apparently Moses likes having him around because now it's time for them to depart and he says to Hobab, hey, come with us. Come on, if you come with us, you're gonna be blessed. Verse 30, but he, that is Hobab, said to him, no, I will not come, but rather will go down to my own land and my relatives. Now, let me clarify something for you. Mount Sinai is not on the Sinai Peninsula. It's in Midian. It's in Arabia. That's how Paul describes it in Galatians 3. Mount Sinai in Arabia, in Midian. Midian is the place to which Moses fled from Egypt. Midian is the place that they're located right now at Mount Sinai, which is across the Red Sea or the Gulf of Aqaba. So they're in that. They're in Midian. 
And Hobab is from Midian, so he says, no, I'm just going to go home. You guys go on. I'm not going to go. I'm going to go back to my family now. In verse 31, then he said, Moses said, please, do not leave us. Inasmuch as you know where we should camp in the wilderness, and you will be as eyes for us. So it will be if you go with us that whatever good the Lord does for us, we will do for you. And it's absolutely true. Moses knew the Abrahamic covenant. It's still in play. Genesis 12, 3, I will bless those who bless you. The one who curses you, I will curse. And in you all the families of the earth will be blessed. Hobab says, nah, I'm not going to go. Moses says, no, 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 come on. You go with us. You know the way. I thought the Lord knew the way. You, You go with us. You can be like eyes for us. I thought the cloud would be eyes for them, right? The cloud lifts and leads them where they're going and then stops where they need to stop. So is Moses being faithless here? I don't think so. I, I mean, I, I don't want to read into it one way or another. I don't want to assume that Moses is going, oh, we need your help, Hobab. But I don't think that's what's going on at all. I think he just liked him. I, I think Moses is like, come with us. In fact, the reality is they didn't need no Hobab. Hobab needed them. Hobab needed the blessing. So why does Moses say what he says? That, you know, you know where we should camp and you can be his eyes for us? Listen, Moses saw innate value in his brother-in-law and he wanted him, wanted him to come along. Have you ever appealed to someone's innate value when you invite them to come along? I'm talking about a non-believer. It's real easy in the church to talk with someone about Jesus and they said, I don't need God. I'm a good person. I'm fine. And you go, well, none of that's true. You're not a good person. You're not fine. No one is righteous. No, not one. But what if we responded to someone like that when they say, I'm fine. I don't need God. What if we said something like, hmm, what if God needs you? What if God would like you to come along? What if we appealed, and I'm not talking in a manipulative way at all, but there's value in you. You have God-given gifts that actually can help us along this way, along this journey. And by the way, you'll be blessed if you come. What if our attitude to the non-believer wasn't you stinking sinner, but was instead you beloved of God, you highly valued person. Jesus loves you so much and wants to bless you and can do such good for you. But, but do you realize what you could do? Do you realize the value that you bring to the table that may be part of the reason God wants you to become a Christian, to come along, is because he wants you? Appealing to the worth of a, of a person. Come with us. There's value in you. Come with us. And you can use your gifts for the Lord. Come with us. See the value in the person. See, that's what Jesus does. If you look throughout the whole of Jesus' life, look throughout the Gospels, just look at how he treated people, how he valued people from Simon and Andrew to Yaakov and John, to Matthew the tax man. Jesus saw value there. Others wouldn't have. Mary of Migdal, or Nathaniel, or 
Nicodemus, the Pharisee, or the centurion, or Judas Iscariot. Jesus saw value in every one of these, which is why he said, follow me. Follow me because I want you to come with me. Follow me because I value who you are. I made you, I created you, I gave you life. I don't want to lose that. Jesus saw value. And it's worth thinking about when we consider inviting someone to come along the journey with us, to become a Christian, to give their lives to Jesus Christ, to mention, and not just in passing, you are worth so much. In fact, you're so valuable to Jesus that he died for you. Come along and serve him. Well, verse 33. Thus they set out from the mount of the Lord three days journey with the ark of the covenant of the Lord journeying in front of them for the three days to seek out a resting place for them. Beautiful. See the picture? Judah goes first. Praise goes first. But the lion of the tribe of Judah goes first. But you know what else went even before the lion of the tribe of Judah? We just found out the mercy seat. Mercy goes first. The mercy seat goes and finds the resting place because at the mercy seat of the cross, that's where we find our rest. And so the cloud of the Lord was over them by day when they set out from the camp. And it came about when the ark set out, Moses said, rise up, O Lord, and let your enemies be scattered and let those who hate you flee before you. And when it came to rest, he said, return, O Lord, to the myriad thousands of Israel. I'll just point out that word myriad is ribabot and it means innumerable immense Moses here declares that the number of the children of Israel the sons of Israel is massive and by the proclamation of Moses as this immense company of Israelites stepped out from Mount Sinai and into the wilderness they rose and they rested in the Lord Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word to us tonight. Thank you for taking the time to show us all the preparations of the children of Israel there at Mount Sinai. All that you laid out and wove into them and worked into them and prepared them for so that as they came into the wilderness, all this would be set and ready. Father, it strikes me you've done the same thing with all of us before any of our wilderness wanderings, any of our challenges or struggles, you have prepared us. And you have been, I think, even here with our study through the first 10 chapters of Bamidbar, you have been preparing us to go in the wilderness. And I thank you for that. Lord, by your spirit, we now ask that you will seal these things to our hearts, that we would recall in the day of need what we've been taught, how we've been prepared that we as your people would, like the people of Israel, rise when you rise and rest when you rest and only move out by the cloud by day and the fire by night, trusting fully, completely in your Holy Spirit, Lord. Jesus, you said the wind blows wherever it pleases. You don't know where it comes from or where it's going. So is everyone who is born of the Spirit. And so we, Lord, as born-again people, simply want to be carried on the wind of the Spirit 
by the cloud of your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.